We were supposed to start at three. Hey, I'm out there making fat stacks, man. Chill. Hey, prepaid cell phone. Use it. Which is this? 26 big ones. Is that all? $26,000? Uh, no, that's $2,600. And your share is 13. Minus 25 bucks for that phone. How much meth did you sell? Nearly an ounce. Last time I checked, there were 16 ounces to a pound. What'd you do with the rest? Smoke it? Yo, I've been out there all night slinging crystal. You think it's cake, moving a pound of meth one-teenth at a time? So why are you selling it in such small quantities? Why don't you just sell the whole pound at once? To who? What do I look like, Scarface? This is unacceptable. I am breaking the law here. This return is too little for the risk. I thought you'd be ready for another pound today. You may know a lot about chemistry, man, but you don't know jack about slinging dope. Huh? Well, I tell you, I know a lack of motivation when I see it. You, you, you've got to be more imaginative, you know? Just, just think outside the box here. We have to move our product in bulk, wholesale. Now, how do we do that? What do you mean, to like a distributor? Yes. Yes, that's what we need. We need a distributor. Now, do you know anyone like that? Yeah, I mean, I used to until you killed him. Taking a new product to market is rarely easy. Just ask Walter White. Our role in that is often unpredictable. After all, Walter was a chemistry teacher before his entrepreneurial escapades on Breaking Bad. He had to learn a lot of new skills to become successful in an entirely different industry. Jan Young got her start in tech before the dot-com bubble burst as a project manager. After moving from New York to Los Angeles, she had stints in marketing, sales, account management, product management, customer success, and go-to-market strategy consulting. Today, she's focused on helping customer success leaders excel in their current role and learn the skills to move into executive roles. This week on Next in Q, Jan and I discuss a shocking admission of guilt from Jan, how customer success impacts the go-to-market function, how the freemium model can lead to easier enterprise procurement, the importance of culture design by founders of companies, how customer success is involved in change management, how customer success drives land and expand for subscription models, and the most critical skills for customer success professionals. Let's get to it. Welcome to Next in Q, the podcast for contact center and customer experience professionals. Next in Q is brought to you by Happy Two Vision. Eliminate blind spots and see right through every conversation with Happy Two Vision. Learn more at HAPPITU.com. Now, here's your host, Rob Dwyer. Thanks for joining another episode of Next in Q. Rob DeWire with you, and I am bringing a special friend along for the journey today, Jan Young. Jan, how are you? 
I'm good, Rob. It's nice to see you. Yeah, you as well. So uh, as we're recording this, we are uh, about to hit the 4th of July holiday. This is going to come yeah. out a little bit later than that for the people that are listening. Uh, but I think we should start by learning a little bit more about you, what you're doing today, and how you came to be in the role mm. that you're in. You know, it's funny. I, I think about evolution a lot lately because um, I'm in the midst of an evolution yet again. And maybe we always are, but um, so I've been involved in tech for many years. I thought that I was going to be a playwright or a writer of some sort at one point. Um, and I was doing tech as my day job. And that was because part of the writing that I did was like theater, or I was also doing a little bit of indie filmmaking stuff. And so you always have to like organize things. Uh, budgets or lack thereof, you know, people, you know, you're, you have no authority over anyone, everything is dotted line, you know, kind of thing. And so, so I first got involved in tech, and I'm kind of OG in that way, um, in that it was back during the dot com days. And I became a project manager back before there was the whole PMP and all of the official things you need now, right. So I think back then project management was a way in. For me, it certainly was. And um, yeah, so I applied those skills and I started to then think about how tech would enable um, content to be much more diverse and for people to have access to it in different ways. And, and, it, and it absolutely has. If you look at what the internet has done, you know, the, the types of you know, mini sodes and mini series and, you know, series that go on and different types of films and, you know, self-published books and, you know, blogs and you name it, you know, podcasts, right? <laughs> you know, we didn't have podcasts back then. <laughs> and so you think about like just the explosion in content that happened and um, it was so exciting to be a part of that. Um, I think I... I, I think I was kind of hoping that it wouldn't lead still to sort of like the same system of sort of mega hits and that sort of thing. In some ways, uh, it did diversify content. In other ways, we have bigger mega hits. But um, I got involved then in entertainment tech. So I ended up moving from New York to Los Angeles, where I was never going to live. And, um, and I went to business school, of all things. All of my indie film folks, were, friends were like, what are you doing going to business school? Do not. Um, but I really wanted to understand, like, how do things work, you know? And um, so and then I uh, came and worked at a studio, no less, um, and worked in marketing. Uh, studio life is not for me. Definitely. I'm a geek. I want to be on the tech side. Um, and and marketing is really interesting, but it's not what I wake up for. Right. And so I really just didn't care. And so I got out of that too. <laughs> so I went from project management to marketing. And then I went to sort of like sales account management, but it was at a startup. And I was doing kind of, you know, where you wear 50 different hats kind of thing. And so I was also doing some product management, but really that's where I started my post-sales motion, my post-sales journey, really building up what is what I later came to realize was really a customer success you know, motion where you're really strategic with the customer, 
Um, unfortunately, I, I am partly responsible for ads being in video on demand content because I recognize <laughs> that if they couldn't monetize their content, they wouldn't put as much out there. Um, so it's your fault. It, Got it, it. it is kind of my fault. I'm sorry. I hate ads. So it is a little <laughs> ironic, but, um, and so, yeah, so, you know, I was doing all of that. I also, you know, rose up the ranks, you know, became VP, went to another startup, was working more like with professional services where they thought that they were going to have a SaaS product. It was really a very customized cloud product, which is why I was really doing professional services and not customer success there. Um, but you know, just understanding those distinctions, right? Mm -hmm. And then really by that time, um, all the consolidation was happening in that marketplace. And it was really no fun because instead of all of the change and the explosion of opportunity, all of a sudden it was more like layoffs and you know consolidation and boohoo, no one wants to be doing that. And so I started doing consulting first in, still in entertainment tech, switched over to emerging tech because that's always where my love is, you know, is things that are changing. And started looking at blockchain and AI and, you know, all the other kinds of things that I love to geek out on. Um, working a lot with founders and helping them identify that whole go-to-market motion because I had been involved in everything from pre-sales over to post-sales and trying to help them identify, you know, why do customers come to you? How do you keep them? Because acquisition is so expensive. All of those things, right? So just kind of going through that. And then, and then the pandemic started to happen. And I also simultaneously around that time found the customer success community, which is just like this addictive community of people who are smart and strategic and generous and kind. And you just like, as soon as you meet one, you meet more, you meet more and you just like, you're just there. And so I've really been focusing then on uh, the post-sales motion and customer success community for about the last three, maybe four years. Um, and I, for the last couple of years, I was working with a team of, it's a boutique customer success consultancy and really, you know, love the team, love all the IP that was, you know, that's there, but you know, I, I am an entrepreneur at heart. I always get ideas. And so I'm now also starting some projects uh, where I see, uh, where I want to do like some cohort coaching courses so that people are really digging in and applying things. And also I'm looking at some of the gaps in the marketplace for what CS leaders need. And I'm also back to looking at the whole go-to-market motion. And I, there's there's a lot of different um, folks I've been interacting with lately who've identified that it's that lack of alignment in the go-to-market motion. And that's really everything from marketing, sales, onboarding and implementation, customer success, support, product. You know, there needs to be an alignment across all of those organizations that either sometimes get very focused on their silos or their, or their um, turf you know, and, and that sort of thing. And, and that's where it breaks down. That's where we, we become amazed. Like, how is this company functioning? How do they keep making profits? You know, <laughs> how do they stay in business because there's this such a lack of alignment sometimes. Right. So anyway, so now this is sort of full circle, the journey where now I get to kind of engage with all of my loves and, um, and kind of work across the board again.
Sounds like you're not busy at all. <laughs> <laughs> well, I just, I, I, I like, I like talking to people. I like thinking about things. I like making things happen. And, you know, I create a lot of partnerships and, you know, it's, it's fun. It's, it's fun. So this is probably going to be the most important question of the day, Jan. Uh -oh. <laughs> Did you have a MySpace? Oh, <laughs> did I have a MySpace? You know, I thought that MySpace was like for bands and things. So I just did Much never, was. Yeah. So I was like, like, eh, you know, so now I, I was, I was thinking I was still a little more into IRL than I was into the social media back then. In fact, I don't know. I, I am a late bloomer when it comes to social media. I really, really love LinkedIn because I feel like it's a place to exchange ideas. I don't do a lot of other, you know, social media otherwise. And I know that makes me, you know, uh, odd in a way because there's so many people who, especially now, are addicted to TikTok or get all their news <laughs> from their Twitter feed, you know, things like that. But um, I get a little bit of stuff here and there, but I, I kind of obsess more on LinkedIn. For your mental health's sake, just stay away from the rest of them. Trust me. There's, there's no need. There's absolutely no need. Well, I, I think too, it's because I don't, I don't care about observing as much as community. I yeah. love, I love opportunities for community. So I'm in probably about 40 different Slack communities. So I guess I, you could say I, I obsess on community, LinkedIn, Slack, some other things over on Circle. I'm really more about community. It's interesting to me that I feel like Slack, which is really a more thought of as a business communication tool, yeah, has been more successful at creating community than all of the social media channels, which really, right, that was the promise of, of social media where these communities, and maybe LinkedIn does a pretty good job of that, but I feel like Slack has really done a great job of that. Yeah, I think they sort of missed their calling a little bit in that if they if they enabled the communities that are there that are using it for free to have an easier business model to make it cheaper to, to do the communities that they're doing for free and they weren't losing, you know, that data every 90 days, because that's the only reason why I'm looking over at Circle and creating a community over on Circle now, because yeah. I can't afford to do the community that I'd like to without losing data every 90 days on Slack. And, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I, it's interesting, right, how people sort of use, use things in ways that maybe weren't intended. But if the story of Slack is that it wasn't intended, Right. They were going to do some other product entirely, you know, until they ended up doing Slack, you know, and now that it's owned by Salesforce, I don't know how creative they're going to be about it. I think that they want that alignment just solely with business. So I think they will miss the, the boat on on uh, enabling communities. I think it's really too bad. Yeah. Well, I, you just said something that I think is uh, fascinating and I think may link to the conversation that I want to have with you. And that is that people find new and interesting ways to use products that you don't anticipate going into uh, the design process or kind of what you anticipate people will use it for. 
how does that continuous, I guess, feedback inform go-to-market strategy when you're finding out how people are using things in ways that you didn't anticipate? See, that, that's why I love the role of customer success, because it is at that intersection between the customer and the company and has the opportunity then to bring in that voice of the customer and share it strategically across the whole go-to-market function, right? And give that feedback to product, give that feedback to marketing and, and to sales and help the executive team, you know, understand how customers are using it, what objectives they have, right? And I think too, that's why there's also that relationship between customer-led growth and product-led growth. Because if you take a look at it, it, there are probably, you know, if you look at Slack, the product-led growth part of it is all of those people who are using it for free. And they're probably thinking in some ways we, we're, we failed because we have not, you know, converted all of these free communities over to paid communities. And in some ways they have, right? Because they haven't figured out a journey, a way to get us to pay a little, right? To be a, a community and stay with them and have that functionality, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, and that's the sort of thing that it, where um, CS and product, you know, and, and the greater sort of go-to-market teams, if they were paying attention and listening to their customers, they could then create the products that their customers would love. And that's also then where you get to product market fit, right? And, and how people think that like, oh, we hit product market fit and then we were like, went to our series C and now we're done. It's like product market fit should also be ever evolving, right? And you should think about that, you know, and have you added so many features that you've missed the boat now and you're no longer product market fit because that happens too, right? Mm-hmm. Like they just keep building and building and it becomes a Winchester house, you know? And it's like, where was the original house in that? You know, like I, every door I open is going to like either a brick wall where there's a fireplace on the other side or <laughs> stairs in front of it, you know, like it's not really usable, you know, and, and, and so, I, I, yeah, anyway, so yes, you need to sort of expand it. But I think ultimately, if, if you think about what journeys you're offering to your customers and what they're trying to uh, achieve, what outcomes they need then you can do it in a way that's, that's organized and, and still simple. I'm curious from your perspective, like how has that model changed how companies go to market? Oh, well, I think that that's where you come to trying to understand like what, where your product fits, like your, if your product is super complex and, or let's say, um, it's going to be the foundation, like an operating system that other things sit on top of, you're not a good candidate for, you know, the freemium model, right? So like you need to understand how your product is going to be used and what are some opportunities in terms of how you can fit in. Like if you take a look at say Calendly or something, they got in on that freemium model to the point where then IT teams have a hard time you know, getting people to use whatever calendar they were going to say, no, use this one. It's like, yeah, that's hard to use. I'm going to use this one, right? So like you have to, you know, um, which is which is a win on Calendly's part, right? Because that's how they got into the enterprise deals, right? So 
so there's opportunities like that, or like, um, what is it, Airtable and, you know, all those different kinds of things, right, where you can get in through the individual and then from that build an enterprise business. But um, I, I, I do think it's really interesting, but you can't, um, well, I'm just trying to think of like all the different aspects of that. What's interesting about that too is then when you get in to enterprise companies that way, the impact that it has on the procurement process, right? Procurement doesn't have as much leverage because you have all these people using it and saying, don't mess this up. I've got to use this. I've got all my data on this. Don't mess this up. Get the deal done, right? So it gives them more leverage. So I can see how, you know, as a business model, if you have the right type of product, for it, it's great, but mm -hmm. not every product lends itself to that, right? right? And so, so that's one of the things you have to sort of think through is the level of complexity and uh, where your product fits in the overall sort of tech stack, right? Yeah, it's very interesting if you've got the right product, the ability to kind of get your tentacles into the end users before you actually get a deal done can work amazingly well, but obviously that doesn't work for all products, right? Not all products right. are even, um, you know, have a ton of end users. Some may have just a, yeah. a handful of end users. Right. And the other thing too, then is your product needs to be, it's even more critical that your product is intuitive, right? Mm -hmm. If people have to do a lot of training for themselves to be able to use your product or it isn't clear kind of what the workflow is if it doesn't actually enhance what they're doing and you're not getting that adoption on the individual basis you know and and that does happen where, where that's one of the things that a product manager who's who's focusing on on the freemium uh product has to take a look at is you know what is that conversion rate how many people download the product and then don't use it you know you want to make certain that you're you know encouraging that adoption and making it easy for folks to use right otherwise you'll never get to that conversion rate and mm -hmm. and then it also doesn't become viral right mm -hmm. it only becomes viral if it's easy to use so let's talk a little bit about kind of when a misalignment can occur and does that happen based off of a, a certain critical mass or size of a company? Or can those silos start to go up really early on with small companies? When do you typically see those issues start to, to pop up? Yeah, that can definitely happen early on. I've seen um, dysfunction in small companies, certainly. <laughs> um, and, and that's where it really becomes important who you have as part of your initial team, who you bring in, and what that approach is. So often founders are, are not intentional about the culture that they're starting. And mm. it's um, by accident, what sort of culture they they have in a company and um, and you can tell, right? And that's why then oftentimes if you're thinking about a team that you want to join in for a startup, if if you can, you want you want to join in on a team that it um, for the founders at least it's not their first rodeo. Now that's not really possible because people have to start somewhere, right? Right, right. But but those those are the the 
first timer mistakes that you see. And, and unfortunately for some founders, they never really learn um, to, to be intentional about, about culture. Uh, but if, if the founders don't require it, you know, that, that there's a sort of a healthy exchange of ideas and, and that sort of thing, then it's really up to each individual to play nice together. And, and then it's haphazard if it happens or not, then, then you're lucky if it happens to happen. And, um, and it, it really requires the founders to be engaged in it. Yeah. I mean, ultimately, right. A culture is, is a top down function. And if the founder, the CEO, whatever is not fostering a really healthy culture within an organization, you can have all the right people in place and it still won't be healthy because, you know, it's, it's rotting from the head, as they say. Let's talk about how, though, if I've got maybe not a bad culture, but I don't have the strongest culture, how can I go about fostering a better culture if I'm not the founder? Let's say mm -hmm. I'm in product or customer success or marketing. Mm -hmm. What are some of the really concrete actions that I can take to drive that within my organization? It's so funny you mentioned that because I lead a weekly CS office hours and we've been talking about change management in June, and we've now extended it to be what we call a summer of change, where we're doing it on, on a, you know, themes around change management every week. And um, so last week, actually, it was about, you know, how to address change management when you have a whole new executive team come in and all of the change that trickles down, right, from that. Um, but uh, the Tuesday after 4th of July, so it's a 11th of July, I guess, uh, where the topic is going to be exactly that is, you know, how to impact change um, when you're working with resistance, when you're working with resistors, right? And, um, and, and that's often the case, especially too for CS leaders, where because they have all this information coming in from the customer, and they are also then connected to the company, that they're constantly trying to manage change and work with other leaders who may or may not be open to hearing about that customer feedback it, that might feel it might feel like not so not so good like what do you mean they don't like this big feature I just pulled, you know rolled out kind of thing or or whatever it may be and so so that's very common where you are, or if you have a big project that you're rolling out anyway in a company and you're, whether it's putting in a new tool later in the month, we're going to talk about putting in a CS platform, but it's anytime you put in new tools and things like that, you are working within an organization where there are resistors, resistance to change, right? Who moved my cheese? You know, it was not a new, new idea. <laughs> and, um, and, you know, it's, it's real because change is emotional. Mm -hmm. And, and we think we're making logical decisions, but actually, when you look at the neuroscience of it, it goes through the emotional sort of cortex before it gets over to the logical. And usually any of the decisions we make, or, you know, the way that we resist or accept change and that sort of thing, um, 
we rationalize it after we've dealt with the emotion of it. Well, I don't like that change because they, whatever, you know, like whatever it may be, they'll rationalize it, but it, it feels like a threat. And, and that's because actually, and this gets into Britt Andreata, one of my favorite authors, where she talks about the neuroscience, how, how to apply neuroscience to business. And she has a book on change management called Wired to Resist. And, and it, we are actually wired to resist change. We're also wired to learn. She has a book called Wired to Grow. So we do want to learn where we we're enamored with the idea of lifelong learning, but to actually apply anything that we're learning to new habits, we would have to change, which we want to resist. So we're constantly fighting this inward battle, this yin yang or whatever you want to call it, you know, where we're resisting something and we also are, you know, reaching towards something right? Why we never lose the weight we want to or whatever, you know, and you know, why we don't work out every day that we think we're going to or etc. And so all of this comes back to that emotion. And so you have to meet people where they are emotionally and, and help them um, sort of where they, where they are in order to get those other business things done. And we don't talk about emotions very often in business, but but that's where it all is. That's where politics comes from. That's where turf wars and silos and all those things come from. They come from fear, you know, and, and that sort of thing. So you have to think about then how you create those alliances and how you get people on board, you know, how you might, um, you know, fluff them up a little and help them feel better, you know, in terms of their ego and that sort of thing so that they want to come on board, you know, and so that they can meet you with that vision. You know, buying into somebody's vision, a founder's vision, any leader within an organization, their vision is also an emotional thing. You're getting them on board in a way that so now they feel excited. Excited is an emotion, right? That we're always trying to kind of get people on board with us for towards, you know, uh, anytime we're going towards that North Star, you know, it's that also we're wired to want to belong. So, and, and so, to, and to collaborate. Right. And so all of that means like if we're all going towards this North Star together, we belong, you know, and, and it's communicating those things. But so some of that needs to happen on a one on one basis. And some of that then has to be then as part of what you communicate as a group, which also then gets back to what we were just talking about is the founders and what culture they create. And are they getting everybody on board? And if then you find that you're trying to make change in an organization and you're not one of the executive team members or one of the leaders or you're just one executive team member out of maybe one or two that want to see you go in a direction, then how do you influence and, and affect these others to turn them around to thinking about, oh, what about this North Star? You can do it in logical ways by showing them data, but you're also going to have to meet them on that emotional place and help them feel like, uh, or understand how they'll be successful, how the company will be successful. We'll all be in this together. You know, that sort of thing. You have to do both or you, you, you can't influence how that ship is steered, which is ultimately yeah. what you try to do when you're not in a position of power. I love that you talked so much about emotion because it took me a long time to figure this out. I felt, thought of myself as a very logical thinker, a logical person who made decisions based off of facts. 
And I've come around to realize that we all are driven far more by emotions than we are by facts. And those emotions may be uh, backed up or cemented by some facts, but they can also be contradicted by facts. And I still don't care, right? I mean, uh, <laughs> You sure. talk about politics, right? Yep. Uh, this is true in, in sales. It's true in advertising. Like all of those are most effective when we appeal to the emotions. Facts be damned. Like we really don't care. Uh, I, I mean, the, the facts are important, but they're not important as a motivating factor for most people. What you really need to do is get them excited get them on board, get them to feel good, get them to not feel threatened, right? Remove mm -hmm. some of the negative emotions, apply some positive emotions, and then you can make some really incredible changes, regardless of if I'm just trying to do organizational change, or, you know, maybe I just want to make some change in my household. Like there are just right. focus on the feelings. <laughs> right, exactly. Well, and that's why then too, understanding who you're working with is important. You know, there, there's also like, you know, the easiest model is I think the DISC model where you're sort of looking at people who tend to be, you know, more skeptical and want the facts, you know, sort of laid out first, where there's others that, you know, are more social and, you know, kind of thing, like, you know, basically how the DISC lays out. But, you know, you, you need to, to understand who you're working with, what's going to appeal to them. And, and there's going to be a, a way to win people over, but also to get their input, right? And I think, I think that's the other thing too. Part of it is emotion, but part of it also is belonging. And you really want to help people feel like they, they have input and impact. We all want to belong. We all want to be a part of something. We want, you know, to go to work every day and feel like, I don't know, I'm Sisyphus. I've just moved this rock up the hill and now it's back down again. Move it up the hill, it's back down again. Whereas at least if you feel like you've moved it up a hill, it went down the other side and now there's another hill in front, you know, and eventually, you know, whatever, that eventually you see that it's not just endless hills either. Right. Like there needs to be you need to feel like there's progress, impact. You you have a reason to contribute. And there's something that it, you're you know, you're getting to on the other side. Right. Like that's why it's also important to like communicate wins, to communicate that vision, you know, and, and all of those kinds of things. Whether you're working with someone on a project or working, you know, part of, you know, a project that's part of an overall, you know, company or, or whatever it may be, we want to feel like there was a reason to be involved. Mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. <laughs> Going back to the OG thing, when I was first a project manager, I was at an internet consultancy. And we were working like 12 and 16 hour days, building all these, you know, websites do not exist. They didn't exist after the blip was done. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> and that was like a rude awakening early in my career, where it's like, whoa, some of this, you know, like this stuff doesn't exist forever. Like this stuff is a moment in time. Like, what am I doing these 12 and 16 hour days for? What am I building? We all want to build something, you know? go towards that North Star, all of those different analogies. That's why they yeah. have those analogies. 
<laughs> Absolutely. And I'm glad we could bring some Greek mythology into the show. There's not you enough, like Sisyphus? Yeah. <laughs> not enough Greek mythology on Next in Q. I want to talk a little bit about, we've been talking about belonging, but yeah. uh, we also talked about, right, some of these uh, wiring issues that we have mm-hmm. as humans, this interesting dichotomy. And I wonder if you see that in organizations, particularly as teams grow, if that sense of belonging can sometimes create that allegiance to a team as opposed to the organization and contribute to some of those siloed issues or that Mm -hmm. us versus them mentality. Mm -hmm. And how do you, how do you keep that allegiance or feeling of belonging to the team while still fostering uh, a belonging to the greater organization? Oh yeah. Well, or you can be so aligned with your organization that out in the marketplace, you see them as the enemy. The problem is, is it's a very small world and you can't afford to build enemies because you might be working with that person who you treated as an enemy, you know, just a few short years later kind of thing. So yeah, all of that can absolutely. And you think about there can be different drivers. People who are in sales tend to be more competitive, respond to competition. People who are in the post-sales motion are usually, you know, driven by other things, more like relationship oriented and things like that. Even though frankly, with land and expand, you should be uh, oriented towards revenue as well. That's another topic, but yeah. And so then what happens is, you know, when you do need to be cautious as the leader that when you start to build up your team, if you make them feel like they are the most important thing in the organization, then they will not be as inclined to, you know, play nice with the other teams in the organization. And yet it's only if everybody plays nice and works together, because when you think about it, that's the other thing too, looking at it from the customer perspective. From the customer perspective, they're first interacting with marketing, that marketing message or the webinars or content, whatever they're putting out there. Then they're interacting with the sales rep. Then they're interacting with the people who are post-sales, right? And they're using the product that product and engineering is building and operations might serve, depending upon what type of organization you have, right? And so, or product and et cetera. But anyway, the way that the customer is going through and flowing through it in their workflow to them it's the company and they mm-hmm. they might be getting passed off between people but if they feel passed off if they feel like you don't know anything about the conversation i just had with the folks before you know then then they lose trust in you and in the company and in the product and they're starting to have that roving eye there's something better out there Right. And so if you don't have that cohesiveness, you know, and you have those silos instead, that is a real threat, actually, not just to your company, but to your own individual job. Because once it starts to break down, everybody is vulnerable. Yeah, absolutely. All right. You said it's another topic. Let's let's get to it. Land and expand. Let's okay. talk more about that. Yeah. Well, when you think about the subscription model, the way that it's really set up is you have the initial, you know, 
money revenue that comes in with that land. And that's usually, a pro, um, you think of that as hunters for the sales folks who are going out and they have the whole marketplace and they're bringing people in. But that's an expensive motion with that customer acquisition, especially as it's harder to get eyeballs through marketing and all these other things, right? So you don't break even just by signing somebody. In fact, you don't usually break even in 12, until 12 to 18 months later. And that's if you're a healthy company of that subscription model where you have folks renewing, uh, you know, paying monthly or paying for the annual. So if then that customer is not going to be profitable or break even until 12 or 18 months later, then you cannot afford to have them drop out and not use your product and not pay for your product, want their money back, whatever it may be um, in that first year, but usually not even in the first year and a half. So then that means if you don't renew, if you were on an annual subscription, if you don't renew that customer, you've actually lost money on them, right? So if that's the case, then you go out of business if you haven't at the very least renewed them. But also, if you haven't onboarded them properly, uh, trained them on your product, you know, gotten successful adoption, you know, penetrated where it's like deep and, and broad in terms of the, the adoption, which requires that change management. They can't just learn it because adoption is learning plus changing. So you're also having to use that change management to help your customers actually change their habits and use your product. It's not just automatic right, to change that, you know, habit. So they have to do all of those things successfully just to feel like, yeah, okay, I'll renew. But then also you need to be with them partnering strategically to help them with the vision of like, hey, you could use our product, you know, also in this other part of your organization, or you could use this other product we have, you can cross sell them and say, you could also use this and it will help build and, and help you achieve the business outcomes that you shared with me that you have, right? That sort of thing. That's the strategic relationship. So oftentimes too, you'll see in broken organizations, CSMs act as sort of glorified support. Now support is very important. It's not that you don't want to have top-notch support team. You do. That's important. But if your CSMs are acting like, you know, a support team instead of a strategic team and partnering with your customers strategically, then they're not going to understand that they should renew. They may not have adopted the product in the way that they need to in order to renew. And they won't eventually upsell or cross-sell in the way that you need them to, to expand. And so then your whole expansion motion is broken as well. And then that's another way to go out of business, right? Because your acquisition cost was so much that you didn't take them past the, the period of time at that break-even point, right? And then you also lose out on the you know customer lifetime value where they could have expanded more because they left and now you've gone out and you have to spend more money to get a new customer in. If you don't fix it for that new customer, so then they you know, renew, they expand, then again, you, you lose out on that potential for that customer lifetime value. And so you just continue to stay even in terms of growth at best or lose money instead of doing that hockey stick that is what you really want to try to do. 
And so all of those post-sales motions, which are very different than the pre-sales motions, need to be in place and working well so that then you can really do that expansion the way that you're set up to do as a subscription model. You've served so many different roles in organizations. <laughs> yeah. And I, I know that in doing that, you acquire a, a breadth of skills that you can then apply in, in other types of roles. But when I think about client success or customer success, which whichever terminology you prefer, mm-hmm. I wonder what skills you look at as these are the most critical skills that someone needs to either have or develop and develop quickly if they're going to be in that role. I hear you talking about the strategic. So mm-hmm. I imagine strategic thinking is part of that, but I'm wondering what are the maybe top three or five things that you look at? Like these are must have skills. Well, you do need to lead with the strategic capability, right? Like strategic thinking, because then that enables you to understand what other things you need to do. And relationship building and building trust is certainly part of it. Um, Project management, I think, plays in because you need to have a vision for what your endpoint is and then be able to step back to where you are now and what you need to have in place to then get to that endpoint. And that's really sort of that project management motion. Um, And analyzing data and being curious is also really important. We have so much data that is in our companies now that you want to, to be able to think about how you can pull that data together in a way that can lead you towards your most profitable activities. And what I mean by profitable isn't just in terms of revenue, but how you should prioritize your time, where you should spend. There's only so much time you have in a day. Where should you focus that? And so so thinking about then, um, you know, like that's why it's exciting that the, um, the tech stack that we have and the way that AI can be used now is, is um, allows us to take in all of that data and analyze it in ways that you can't humanly actually analyze, you know, that you have mm-hmm. so much data, it would, it takes too much time and it's, it, it's not something you can fathom, right? But being, being sort of nimble and smart about picking up those new tools and, and how you, um, what questions you want to ask. It really gets down to the questions in the end, what questions you ask of your data, what questions you ask of your customers, what questions you ask of how you're prioritizing your time or, you know, any of those things. I'd say it also comes down to, to questions in the end. Yeah. Okay. So we're nearing the end of our time together, but I'd like to know what kind of thing has been burning on your mind lately that you'd love to share with the audience that we haven't touched on at this point? Well, we've been talking a little bit about alignment already. I, I think that is sort of the burning thing, you know, question or, or topic that I've been focusing on, um, where it, it, in, in its connection to customer-led growth, which is really about how to take those customer insights and use them to improve your product, improve your organization, improve how you go to market, 
you know, all of those things efficiently and effectively. Um, how organizations can work together, you know, to do that, uh, and the role of um, customer success leaders in that also, I think, is important. Um, I think the other thing, too, in some of the courses that I'm trying to build up right now is I'm thinking about um, how to help CS leaders step up into that executive role. Mm -hmm. um, there is a difference in the way you think if um, you're asking permission when you're sort of middle management versus at when you're part of the executive team. That's where it's up to you to make a decision. It's up to you to then get other people on board with that decision, right? And how you work across all the different di disciplines um, to, to work together towards that North Star. And, um, and there is a change in mindset that people need to do when they're making that transition from the middle management to the executive you know, layer as well. So I, I think a lot about those things right now. Um, talk to me another six months, I'll... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you brought up about something else. Uh, yeah, I do have it. So, yeah, uh, I'm gonna shout out to one of ah, my yeah. favorite books, Marshall Goldsmith. When you when you talk about that difference in mindset and and difference in skill set as well, yeah, I think it's important that at every level, right? Yeah. If you want to progress to uh, a role with with greater reach responsibility, you are going to have to learn to do new things to be successful in that role because it's different than even if you were the best at what you did in role mm -hmm. A, when you move into role B, yep. it's a whole new ball game. And yeah. that's what you're talking about, right? Jumping into that executive level absolutely requires a, a different level of ownership mm -hmm. as you approach certain things. Yeah, that's really true across the board of every leader in each discipline within an organization, how to think differently once you get to that executive table and how to think beyond just your own function. Um, and you also see that too then when you're an individual contributor and now you're managing people, it's a very mm -hmm. different role. It's not right for all people. You don't have to go and become a manager. There are other types of things you can do, you know, if you want to um, continue growing, but you don't want to change and start managing people, right? And, and, and that's important for people to think about. But yeah, no, I, I love that you suggested that book. I think that that's, you know, um, that's important. There was a post I wrote, maybe maybe it's a couple of weeks ago now, um, about imposter syndrome, and there was somebody called me out on it and said, "Well, you know, wasn't it's not great to put it this way, but but I was basically saying like I don't understand imposter syndrome because like we all need to learn and grow. So why feel like an imposter because you need to learn and grow, you know? And and somebody called it out and said, "Well, that's a very real emotion. Imposter syndrome isn't you know pretend and." And like, I wasn't trying to say like, it isn't valid, but at the same time, like, please reject the whole notion of imposter syndrome. Please reject it. Because what we should be thinking about is that every time, every time we, we uh, change what our roles are, whether it's a different uh, point of view in an organization, whether it's a different function or a different level, like we're always doing something different, 
We're always learning and growing. There's always something new to do. And in fact, we want to learn and grow. We are wired to grow. And so let's embrace that instead of, you know, reacting to it with fear. Yeah. And you're going to stink it up uh, in the early stages of uh, doing something brand new, probably a little bit. And that's okay. Right. We all need help. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it takes a a village, you know, if you, if, if as a leader, you get input from people, right. You know, from a variety of different sources, instead of just like, oh, I must know this all on my own. Like who knows it all on their own anyway, that is like the worst example of leadership that any of us would want to be a part of. You know, and all of us want to contribute anyway, get those contributions, see if there's somebody who has another way, but then make a decision and lead, you know, so like, just, yeah, I mean, I'd say that probably fear is, is probably our biggest enemy, you know, and, and as, as much as we can poke holes in the fear that's driving us to do unwise things, we're better off. Yeah, absolutely agree. Jan, it's been so great having you on the show. If someone wanted to, number one, get in touch with you, what's the best way for them to do that? Well, uh, as we speak, I'm building out my website, janyoungcx.com. So that will be a good way to reach me. Um, And then LinkedIn, um, janyoung-cx is is how you can reach me generally. So LinkedIn's a good way too. And we'll have that in the liner notes. And you want to give a shout out to the the CS community. Maybe I know you're in a few. Which one would you say, hey, if you're uh, new in in, uh, a customer success role or you're trying to get into one of those types of roles, where should people go to join a community and, and learn more? Oh, well, there's there's lots of places to go, most certainly. Um, I'd say one thing I do enjoy is with the CS Office Hours community. We have leaders, CSMs, uh, people transitioning into CS, people who are in roles currently, people who are switching roles. So we have a variety of people there. From there, though, there's so many fantastic communities to get in, involved in um, that, you know, I really strongly suggest that, you know, it, it isn't just about being in one, um, you know, there's different organizations like Su- Success in Black or Gain, Grow, Retain or CS Leadership Network, the whole variety of things. But if you come to CS Office Hours and I can give you that link as well, um, we can get you started and you can can find a variety of, of uh, people and, and places to interact. And then LinkedIn, there's a great community there. Yeah. I think we need a CS MySpace, but that's just me. (laughs) Well, there kind of is. It's just not on MySpace anymore. (laughs) Jan, thanks so much for joining. All right. Thanks a lot, Rob. Next in queue is brought to you by Happy To and is produced by me, Rob Dwyer. If you enjoy this podcast, please, by all means, subscribe and or rate this podcast in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. But more importantly... Please tell just one person about this podcast. Word of mouth is the best way for people to discover new content. As always, thanks for listening.